Hello, and welcome to Talking and Chill, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hey, Tamar. Hi, Mimi. <laughs> it's so good to have you back. We really missed you last month. It is so nice to be back. Last month's episode was amazing. It was really lovely to hear. Hey, guys. I have been a little coldy this week, so I apologize if my voice sounds a little... I don't know, inadvertently grumpier than usual. I was going for don't sexy, be- but <laughs> <laughs> grumpy's word works too. Well, we're so glad that you're here, even if you're feeling a little under the weather. Thank you for joining us, Sahaba. So this month on the podcast, we're talking about awesome historical Jewish women that we didn't learn about when we were kids. And we're going to talk about Jewish rituals that we wish existed or didn't exist. So, Mimi, will you take it away for our first segment? Yeah. So, um, I wanted to talk about, as Tamar said, amazing historical Jewish women, um, in part because I was online recently and took um, myjewishlearning.com has a bunch of quizzes. So they had one called the Prominent Jewish Women Quiz. And I was appalled at how little I knew about what they were considering to be prominent Jewish women. Um, so Beruria knew she was an awesome learned woman in the Talmud, but had no idea some crucial details of her life. Um, and just sort of got me thinking about um, the ways that our Jewish education, which for me was very time limited on, in like a few hours on a Sunday and then at home, um, the ways that our Jewish education really skims over a lot of important Jewish women sort of goes with the matriarchs to Esther to Golda Meir. Um, and we miss a lot. We miss a lot in between. Um, so we each took a few people, or maybe I only sort of researched one woman, um, and we're going to share what we learned and and why we think they're important. Well, before we get to that, should we talk a little bit about, like, when and where we learned about cool Jewish women? Like, in what context did we learn this stuff? Yeah, please. So, <laughs> I have to confess that uh, I think it is very likely that I wrote that prominent Jewish women quiz oh. <laughs> on my Jewish learning. Hilarious. Because I used to work there, and I did write a bunch of quizzes, and that was probably one of the ones that I wrote. Um, so I wouldn't say that that quiz was super hard for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> the answers were C. But- always C. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did... I I don't think that I knew that much about most of the women in the quiz before I started working at my Jewish learning, even though I went to 13 years of Jewish day school and took a lot of Jewish studies classes in college. Like I, this stuff really wasn't taught to me in a formal way. Um, and it is interesting to me, but not really surprising um, because I assume that it's a largely a problem of documentation. Like there's just so much more documented about men's lives than women's lives. And, um, so yeah, as a result, 
of that and a bunch of other things, men were kind of typically the ones writing the history books, and so they didn't feature women that much. Um, so I assume that's why I didn't learn that much about um, awesome Jewish women. And when I did, they were often portrayed as like the most amazing homemaker. <laughs> like I was thinking about in college, I took a class on Yiddish literature and the teacher was like obsessed with Gluckel of Hamlin. Do you, either of you know later, ladies know about Gluckel of Hamlin? She was one of the options on the My Jewish Learning Quiz, which maybe you wrote, but I didn't even look her up. Yeah, I mean, her name has cropped up in various searches, but the little that has come up about her in the searches has never seemed that interesting to me. It just, the, the one thing I can tell you is she seems to be a woman who wrote some things down and therefore we know about her. Yeah, I think that is a good summation of Cluckle of Hamlet. I mean, so I will say this. She wrote, her diaries are were written in Yiddish in, I believe, like the 16 and 1700s. And um, they were published after she died. And they're like supposedly a big, they're a big part of like Yiddish literature. Um, the English translation of them that I wrote, that, that I read was atrocious. And the teacher of the class was actually like, I had only ever read this in the Yiddish. And when I read it in the English, I was like, ugh, this is a terrible translation. But she hadn't read it in the English until after she assigned it to us to read. So that was not awesome. Um, and the books are just like her life as a, uh, I mean, she helped to create a like merchandising um, type, like her family, she became very wealthy by running her family's business of selling, of being merchants all over Europe and parts of um, Asia and I think probably also some parts of Africa. So she was a big deal maybe but one of the things is like because we we know about Gluckle of Hamlin from her diaries and probably there were a lot of other women who were like running their families businesses at the same time that we aren't hearing about it's not like she was the only one she just happened to write things down um anyways what was always emphasized to me about Gluckle of Hamlin wasn't like she was a businesswoman it was like she had 14 children and she did this big business and she was a homemaker and she was really big on tachinas, which are like the um, prayers that women said at the time. And I don't know, just something about that is like, I, I am happy for her, but the fact that she was a homemaker isn't the most inspiring part of her to me. So that kind of like selling Jewish women to other Jewish women as just like, amazing balabustas doesn't is not that intriguing to me yeah i guess because like martha stewart exists yeah i mean it sounds to me like gluckle of hamlin as a historical figure is less interesting as an individual than she is as somebody who recorded what it was like to be a woman at a time and so that historical record might be valuable for other reasons but not because she's a great personality i mean i think that this notion of what we emphasize about the women we do learn about is really interesting. So um, as you guys know, I went to Berea High School um, 
and uh, learned some things about Berea, but not like a lot of things about Berea the person, which is kind of interesting. And as I was reflecting on that before this episode, I realized that the stories, there were like two main stories that I learned about Berea. Um, and just to back up for listeners who aren't familiar, Berea is a woman in the Talmud. She's quoted as a scholar and as a, you know, halachic authority occasionally on certain matters. Um, she's also described by the relationship to men in her life. She's the daughter of Rabbi Hanina ben Shradjon, who's one of the 10 martyrs killed by the Romans. And she's the wife of Rabbi Meir, uh, who's a very prominent personality in the Gemara. So, but she is quoted as a scholar and she's referenced as somebody with a lot of learning and, and Jewish legal knowledge. But the two stories that I learned about her in high school really emphasized her personal piety and not so much her position as a scholar. Though in both cases, she is sort of teaching her husband something about Judaism, so I guess that's worth something. But um, one is the story of the death of her sons. There's this story that was meant to be sort of inspiring um, about both of her sons dying on Shabbat and her hiding their bodies in the attic and not telling her husband about it until after Shabbat so that he wouldn't be sad on Shabbat. And then as a comforting thing to him, instead of mourning together, she says, well, if you had a very important and trusted friend who entrusted you with something very valuable and then he came and asked you for it back, what would you do? And the husband is like, well, of course you give it back. And she said, that is what's happened to us and our sons were entrusted to us by God. And like, very lovely and maybe or maybe not a good way to deal with mourning, depending on who you are as a person. Um, but certainly it's not really about her as like a, a learner and scholar. It's about her as a pious person. Um, in kind of a related vein, there's the story about how Rabbi Mayer was extremely irritated by the terrible behavior of their neighbors and was praying for them to die. Um, and she said to him, no, you like what you should be doing is praying for them to repent and become better people and like a, a love the sinner, hate the sin kind of thing. Um, and those two stories were the two stories I was taught about Berea in, in Berea High School. Um, there was no official Berea on Berea curriculum, so it's possible that these were just the stories that my teachers knew. Um, I didn't have any female Talmud teachers in high school, and it's possible that those were the stories that they had encountered. Um, but Berea in the Talmud is like a much more interesting and somewhat caustic personality, um, which is kind of cool about her. Um, like there's this story that I could not place in my quick search before recording the podcast, but I distinctly remember learning about her hitting one of the students in the yeshiva who was learning sitting too still because there's a ma'amar chazal, there's like a saying that, that one has to engage all the limbs of one's body in in the learning process in order to retain the knowledge. And he was just like sitting there reading and she sort of like whacked him upside the head um, and taught him this rule, um, which I think is just like you get a much more vivid and a very different personal sense of her from that story. Um, and there are a couple of stories about her sort of commenting on the way the Talmud talks about women um, in, in interesting ways. Um, the most caustic is, is a... Um, Rabbi Yossi Haglili comes to her and asks, using four Hebrew words, directions to the city of Lod. And she said, you could have asked me that in two words. Clearly, you're in violation of Altar Basicha Im Ha'isha, which is the precept that you should not speak excessively to women, which one could read as just her 
rebuking his violation of this precept or as a sardonic comment on the precept itself, uh, or perhaps as a comment on Rabbi Yossi Haglili coming across an extremely learned woman and not thinking of anything to ask her except how to get to load. Um, so, I mean, Berea is not like a super prominent character in the Talmud. It just happens to be that we don't have a lot of women to reference in the Talmud as, um, as sources of halachic opinions. Usually when we encounter a woman in the Talmud, it's through some kind of like case study, like, and this occurred to this woman and therefore we learn this halacha or she brought her case to the rabbis and they decided this way. And therefore we learn that halacha. Um, and so what's cool about Berea is that she comes through as this scholar in a way that most women referenced in the Talmud do not. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, but I do think it's significant that in the same way that Tamar is saying, we learn about a lot of women, but they're like sort of sold to us as like amazing juggler blenders having it all, um, that the stories that I learned about Berea in school were more about her like more traditional piety. Well, also it's interesting that they're extreme, they're portraying her as the opposite of what we think of as feminine. Like she's not being like warm and nurturing. She's being kind of harsh and uh, strident. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's, you know, that's its own kind of... um, countercultural inspiration. Um, but the, the stories that I was taught in high school are also presences in, in her history, right? Like they're in the Gemara and in the Midrash. And, um, and I, I think we just get a sense of her as a fuller person. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's quite interesting. I mean, there's also a story in the Talmud that, that's rather scandalous about her death, but, you know, it doesn't seem to undermine her. So one thing I think is interesting is that the story of her death, so just quickly, the, the story is she's having a debate with her husband over um, the phrase, the, the a notion, nashim de'atan kalot, that women are like lightheaded or unserious or easily swayed in some way. And Rashi implies that they might be easily swayed in the sense of being like uh, seducible. And, um, and in order to prove his point, her husband has one of his students try to seduce her rather relentlessly. And eventually she like, gives in and sleeps with him and then kills herself out of shame. Um, This is, you know, possibly apocryphal, but the story is there in the Gemara. And I think that it's interesting that that the story seems to be mostly a commentary on Nashim Da'atan Kalod as an idea um, and whose fault is it that this happened and and whose motivation was it to try and prove this point. But also the notion that she might have been both someone who committed adultery and suicide does not undermine the validity of her teachings elsewhere in the Gemara, which I think is also really interesting. Um, so I think there's a hmm, lot of plum about her. Yeah. I hope that the end of that story comes down harshly on him for this horrible backfiring plan. Uh, it Yes, it does not, it does not okay. um, go well for him. I think it's an explanation of why something bad was happening to him, and this is one of the hypotheses. Okay. All right, so Mimi, who tell us about who you researched. So I researched a woman named Regina, or Regina Jonas, 
um, Regina, I don't know. Anyway, she was born in 1902 in Germany, and she actually was the first woman that we know of ordained as a rabbi. Um, and I totally fell for Regina Jonas. Um, she, the story goes that she decided at age 11 that she wanted to be a rabbi. Um, she grew up in a small Jewish community. Um, she went to a university that had men and women studying together. All of the other women there were studying to become Jewish teachers, um, but she was clear from the beginning that she wanted to be a rabbi. And she wrote, um, sorry, her thesis was based on whether a woman could hold rabbinical, rabbinic office. Um, unfortunately, her thesis advisor, the person who was presumably going to ordain her, died in 1930, the same year that she finished her thesis. Um, so I just wanted to read you guys a quote from the end of her thesis. She, read, she says, I believe that the question of whether a woman may make halachic decisions may very clearly be seen as permitted, and it's not necessary to continue to linger over this matter. Um, so she wrote that in 1930. The film where I saw this quote read, um, the woman reading it was Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz, who became ordained as a rabbi in 2009. So obviously, 1930 to 2009, and the question is still lingering, but she was very much within an Orthodox Jewish context that she was doing this work. Um, she was later ordained in 1935, and, you know, here she is, 1935, Germany, like all of the Jewish kids who had been going to public schools were now going to Jewish schools, and all of the grown-ups were being either sent to labor camps or forced to work in a factory. Um, so she was forced to work in a factory, but then would still also lead services and work as a chaplain, pastoral counseling um, to smaller communities throughout um, Germany. So then in 1942, I think, she goes to Theresienstadt, Um there's like a hidden synagogue there where her papers are kept, um, including a lot of her sermons. She was a rabbi and a counselor there. And in 44, she was taken to Auschwitz and killed. Um, and I, I don't know, there's something, there, there are some really amazing things about, to say about her persistence. Um, she seemed to really know herself from a very early age that this was what she wanted to do. Um, and that, you know, th there's another quotation from her. God has placed abilities and callings in our hearts without regard to gender. Thus, each of us has the duty, whether man or woman, to realize those gifts God has given. If you look at things this way, one takes woman and man for what they are, human beings. Um, I just, I don't know, I just like get chills at the idea of, first of all, the conviction of her becoming a rabbi in this male-dominated world, and the horrible um, luck of time and place that then places her in the Jewish community in 1930s Germany, and she was lost to us. Um, and really, her story was lost to us. There's um, a video 
where the first women from several denominations go to Theresienstadt to visit um, where she worked and then to Auschwitz where she died. And um, the first woman ordained by the Reform Jewish movement um, says that when she was ordained, people, you know, journalists, um, other rabbis from the reform movement and throughout the Jewish world, you know, sort of hailed her as the first woman rabbi. But we did have this other woman in our history. And there were even, at the time, people who were alive who knew that Regina Jonas had been ordained as a rabbi and yet sort of failed to set the record straight. Um, so I, I I don't know. I I think it's a travesty that her story hasn't been told. Um, unless maybe it has been. Like, did you guys know about this this woman? I mean, I think I'd heard the name and that was about it. Mm-hmm. I probably saw her on a list like, like the one that was in the quiz that you completed, you know? Yeah. I think I knew of her because I wrote the quiz. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like even from like a halachic perspective that she was really trying to work within um, an orthodox framework to find justification for what she wanted to do and and what ultimately she did do, which was serve as a rabbi and pastoral counselor to communities in need. So, yeah, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so similar to Ray Frank, to Regina Jonas is the person that I researched, whose name was Ray Frank. Um, she's an American woman. She, um, grew up in San Francisco and, um, hold on. Um, she was the great, great granddaughter of the Vilna Gaon. Um, and she, her father was a rabbi and she grew up or was a teacher, um, not a rabbi, I think. And she, um, grew up and became a teacher, and she became a religious leader basically by accident. She was traveling as a teacher, and she happened to be in Spokane, Washington on the high holidays, and she asked somebody there if there were high holiday services, and the person said, there aren't very many Jews in Spokane, and they're in such a big fight with each other that um, we haven't been able to put together high holiday services because the community is fighting so much. And she basically was like, that's not okay. I'm going to lead high holiday services. And um, so within one day, she put together high holiday services. And it was announced in the paper locally. And it was announced as a like, anyone can come, Jews and Christians. And a lot of Christians came basically because they wanted to know like what was going to happen at a Jewish service. And um, it was at the local opera house. And she spoke about the importance of unity. Um, and people like really loved her. She stayed through the high holidays and taught again. Um, and that kind of led to her being famous and to people from all over the West contacting her. Um, she traveled extensively and taught extensively in all kinds of congregations. It's interesting because it was like the early 1900s. So there was like a lot of, um, variety, in terms of where she was. So she taught at Reform and Orthodox um, synagogues and presumably, I don't even know if there was conservative at that time. But um, so she really kind of got all over. 
Um, she declined the invitation of a Reformed congregation in Chicago to become its full-time spiritual leader because she felt that she could do her best work, quote, unfettered by boards of trustees and, and salary stipulations, which is kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and also she didn't, all of this happened before she turned 40. Um, and when she was 40, she got married to a professor and she moved um, with him um, to his various positions. And it sounds like she didn't do as much teaching and stuff after that. Um, and I wasn't able to find out if she had children, although I would imagine that she might not have. Um, so given that she didn't get married till she was 40. So yeah, she was just like a really fascinating, and she also, most maybe the most interesting thing I found about her out about her is that she attended rabbinical school for one semester at HUC in Cincinnati and that was it like I think some it's unclear like what made it so that she left but she was like this isn't for me um which is really interesting because she was still considered people called her rabbi sometimes and she would correct them so yeah she was like just a very interesting leader um but I, and I was very interested in her because she was known as a scholar of Judaism, but I also wanted to talk about somebody else who I, like, have been really interested in for the past few years and, like, very genuinely consider writing a book proposal about, like, her and trying to write her biography because she was so cool. This person is um, Justine Weiss Polier, and her father was Rabbi Stephen Wise, who um, is a famous Reform rabbi, and he helped found the NAACP, which I didn't realize before I started researching this. Um, and she grew up in California, and she went to um, various Ivy League and Seven Sisters school, and she ended up at Yale Law School. And um, after she was in law school, she went and organized a strike for textile workers in Passaic, New Jersey. And um, she married one of her law school professors, um, but he died four years later um, after they'd had a child together. Um, and shortly after he died, when she was a single mother in the 1930s, she was appointed the first female judge in New York. She was 32, which is just um, incredible to me. <laughs> like it's, And she was a judge for over 40 years. Like she stayed um, in that position for an incredibly long time. And as a judge, she was really involved actually in trying to combat segregation in schools. Um, and she also did a lot of work uh, having to do um, specifically with child and family welfare. Her There was an orphanage that her mother had started and she did a lot of work having to do with um, orphans and children in foster care. And the reason that I know about her is because she was the judge that presided over a really important case in New York that dealt with um, all of the failures of the New York foster system in the um, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, and she continued, even after she retired, she was still still working like four days a week. <laughs> um, she was just an amazing, amazing, badass woman. Um, and I can't, like, there aren't any books written about her. There's just articles. And I think mm -hmm. that is really sad because she just seems like an awesome person. So. Yeah, um, that is amazing. That's, an, that's a crazy life story. You need to get yeah. on that book proposal. 
in my enormous free time. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's sort of going going over like these amazing women from Jewish history or even just reviewing amazing women at any time always makes me feel so inadequate. It's like, oh, by 32, she was a judge? Great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had that exact thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. They, all of these women were, were incredible. Um, and I think yeah. it's interesting that, like, we're all pretty Jewishly literate people. And Zahavat sounds like you knew a fair amount about Talmudic breweria, but not um, not even all of the things that you sh- like. Some of the things that you shared today, you didn't. You kind of knew as folk tales, but not as like texts. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting, Mimi. You said before it's like we go matriarchs, Esther, Golda Meir. Um, which I think is pretty close to true. Um, I like maybe I'll add like. I could probably rattle off the seven female prophets in Tanakh and um, then like, you know, it's funny because I, I know these words like Queen Shlomzion or Queen Heleni without knowing anything about them. Like, I think I learned there was a right. Queen Shlomzion from like a street sign in Israel. Um, <laughs> and like, these do feel like lacunas in my knowledge. And I really, when I wanted to pick a more recent woman to like learn about for this podcast, I really wanted somebody more recent than the Talmud, but older than like 200 years ago, because I feel like a more liberal denominations really have opened up opportunities for women in more recent years, but also because record keeping was better, but also because in like my like deep seated orthodox sense that like older is more legit. (laughs) Um, I, I like wanted something that felt like a real historic precedent um, that wasn't influenced by like um, a modern liberalism, but felt very like authentic to a Jewish community that I don't think of as very liberal. Um, and when I came across this, um, the story of this woman, Osnat Barzani, who was part of the Kurdish community in the late 15th, early 16th century, I was like, I got to know more because First of all, we have these stereotypes about Sephardic communities and Middle Eastern communities as being less female friendly without really a lot of knowledge. So I thought the fact that she was prominent in the Kurdish community was really interesting. Um, But so there's not a ton about her because of the time period, but she's a really interesting person. And I just want to share a couple of things. So, um, So she lived, as I said, in Kurdistan. Her father was the head of the yeshiva in Mosul, which... I mean, Mosul is not a place I associate with yeshiva these days. Um, uh, his name was Rabbi Shmuel ben Netanel Halevi Barzani. Um, and she had no brothers, and her father educated her, quote-unquote, like a son, um, which I think is really key, teaching her not only Torah and Midrash, but also Talmud and reportedly Kabbalah, um, which is an especially unusual thing to teach a woman. It's, a, it's an unusual thing to teach a young man as well. And then she married one of her father's greatest students, and one of her father's stipulations for the marriage was that she would not have to do any housework so that she'd have time for study. Um, so this is a real counterpoint to that. And she juggled the 14 children, right? So this is um, is really interesting. And apparently, even while her husband, uh, Rabbi Jacob Mizrahi, was alive, she taught many of the students at the yeshiva, which he had taken over from his father-in-law. 
And then when her husband died young as well, she became the de facto head of the yeshiva. Um, and she, according to some people, was regarded as a rabbi in her time, even in the uh, early 17th century. Um, and also by non-Jewish historians, is sometimes considered the first female leader in Kurdistan, which is quite interesting. Um, and so as like a Rosh Yeshiva and de facto rabbi in a 17th century Sephardic community, I just thought she was like so uh, stereotype smashing. Um, and I was just really, really glad to run across her um, in, in the literature because I feel like the, the more precedents we have, the more authentic things feel when we do them later. Um, again, that's probably like my deep-seated orthodoxness, but like I think that that, that feels true. Um, and so I'm, I'm always excited to encounter these precedents. That's really cool. I have definitely never heard that name before, so I'm really glad you taught us about her today. We're going to have to find some streets to name. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> Whatever. Um, yes. All right. Well, should we move along to our second topic now? I yeah, feel much more educated it. about Jewish women. Um, so we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, rich, Jewish rituals because, uh, well, I came up with this topic because I have, um, for the past couple of months, been moonlighting as an editor at Ritual Well while their editor is on maternity leave. So um, every evening I look and see what people um, submit in terms of their, their own Jewish rituals that they have created. And so it's made me think a lot about um, what Jewish rituals we have and don't have and um, how people are reinventing them and kind of how I feel about that. And I wanted to explore that a little bit with all of you. So uh, we were all thinking about rituals that we wish maybe did and or didn't exist. Um, so, but maybe we should all go around and just say like a Jewish ritual that is meaningful to us now. Is that fair? I didn't give you a warning. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> both, of you, so many. both of you just had this look on your face like, ooh, a meaningful. <laughs> I know, how sad is that? Um, the fact is, of course, there are, like, many of them, but now I feel like I need to pick the best one and also I mean, not something cliche. I mean, I think it's okay to pick something cliche if you actually find it meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I'm, okay, I'll embrace the cliche. I actually really like lighting Shabbos candles. Um, I think that, so I'm a big fan of demarcation between Shabbat and not Shabbat. Um, so when I first started like working in a semi, like a semi businessy office setting, I was really frustrated that like my clothes suddenly didn't feel that distinct. And I had this like totally arbitrary, like these are going to be my Shabbat formal clothes and these are going to be my office formal clothes and never the <laughs> twain shall overlap. Um, and then there was this whole like gray area with cardigans anyway. Um, but like, <laughs> I really like having a clear distinction. I hate it when my apartment is not yet clean when Shabbat starts, even though I can yes. put stuff away after Shabbat starts because it like destroys my feeling of transition. And I really like the moment of lighting Shabbat candles because it's like, this is the line of demarcation. Um, and it's something where in that moment of covering my face and saying brachot, I can like, I feel like I am both 
sanctifying this moment in time and this moment in time is sanctifying me and there's this sense of calm and it's just a very clear transition that I really appreciate. Hmm. I, I, I'm with you on that. Um, Mimi, what about you? So I was also thinking about lighting the Shabbat candles um, and the other ritual that came up and to me it's sort of connected is the ritual of Tashlich um, after Rosh Hashanah when we go to a body of water that's moving in some way and do this ritual where we like cast off our sins or our weights of the world um, in the form of bread and it doesn't so this is the way they're connected for me um, and maybe this holds true for many rituals, but none others are coming to mind, that there's, there are words to say for lighting the candles. Many people say words at Tashlich, but in some ways, these rituals are open enough that you can do the action and create meaning or lack of meaning, depending on how you're feeling in that particular moment. I guess there have been times at a Tashlich ceremony when like, I'm just really, I feel connected to the ceremony and that's wonderful. And then there are times when I don't, but I, I don't have to say words that feel hollow to me because there aren't really any words to say. Um, and I like rituals like that where you fill in the meaning for yourself and there's no guilt involved if the words if the words don't feel yeah right yeah um i was thinking about blowing shofar um because it the sound of the shofar really does sound the way i feel like we're supposed to feel on the high holidays like I am a kind of literal person, and to me, I think that's why I struggle with a lot of rituals, because it just feels, like, really disconnected from whatever it's supposed to be about. But hearing the shofar is, like, it feels like there's something screaming in all of us, and we have to get it out. We have to figure out how to kind of, like, stop it. Um... I don't know. It's kind of hard to put into words, but it feels so appropriate. And I often get really emotional um, at hearing the shofar because something about it, like it feels actually like somebody crying. Um, so I really love the shofar. And the other thing that I really love is I love the chuppah, which is such a cliche, but is also like really beautiful. And again, it's like, it's relatively literal. Like you build a temporary open shelter for this one ceremony, um, but it is so powerful. And it's interesting to me that it's like at a Jewish wedding where they might not do like anything Jewish, it's very likely that they'll have the ceremony under a chuppah because people understand and value the kind of metaphorical space that is being created. Um, and so to me like that, that really works and I really find like seeing people go under a chuppah to also be really emotional. Yeah, Tamara, I think it's really interesting what you're saying about relating to the most 
uh, the the rituals where the symbolism is is clearest and sort of like uh, direct on its face. Um, because when I was thinking about what rituals I might be willing to like get rid of <laughs> um, in my Judaism, the first thing I thought was like the ones that seem to be really obscure in their symbolism. Um, and then I have this like my my inner seminary girls like you just haven't worked hard enough to connect to it. Um, so <laughs> you're um, so from um, <laughs> sometimes. Um, but like the first thing that came to mind, probably because we're just through the holiday season, was Hoshanot, um, which is like the you hold your lulav and etrog and you like parade around the shul and there's a series of things that you say, but like they're not that different from things that we say without a lulav and etrog. It doesn't feel that distinct. Um, I don't really know what the whole parading is really accomplishing. The symbolism seems really vague. It's like a remembrance of a previous temple ritual in which the symbolism was really vague. Like how many degrees removed do we need to get? But then like, so I'd, I'd be fine to ditch Hoshana, but that also seemed to me to be kind of a chicken answer because that's a really low stakes ritual, right? Like if you don't make it to Hoshana, it's not like you didn't do the holiday of Sukkot that year. Um, the like obligation attached to it is really minimal. Um, if there really is one, it's just, it's part of the service, but that doesn't make, make it an individual, um, obligation. And I mean, maybe someone out there is going to write in to tell us why Hoshanot is like so meaningful to them. And if you, and if it is, I strongly encourage you to do that because I'd love to like have a better experience with it next year. But I found myself going like, what is the thing that is least obviously relatable and totally unimportant? Like, I, I didn't feel like I wasn't willing to really confront like high stakes ritual moments and, and say that doesn't do anything for me. I would get rid of it. Um, and I don't know if I like, I think there are things that if I were honest with myself, like I don't get really much out of going to the mikvah. Um, it's not personally meaningful, but it's very high stakes in my Judaism and my Jewish community. Um, and I know a lot of women that get nothing out of it, but it's very high stakes. Um, so, you know, I, I had a, I had a hard time like confronting the question of what I would get rid of for that reason. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you are very from, so <laughs> I am not surprised. <laughs> um, yeah. I also would totally be fine with getting rid of the mikvah. I am a person who like anticipated finding it like super meaningful and then I was just like, oh, I'm just naked in front of a stranger who's pulling hair off my back. <laughs> this is not necessary. Right. <laughs> like I was just like, this does not make me feel closer to God or my partner or anything. But some people, I mean, it's very interesting that on Ritual Well, there are a lot of, like, there is a movement of people who are, like, super into the mikvah and are, and like, designing mikvah ceremonies for everything, which yeah. is fascinating to me. I sort of wonder if part of that is water feels like a very um, tangible ritual item and, you know, very connected to transition 
and I think it's more, well, this might be super obvious now that I'm saying it, but it's more about the water than about the, like, the having somebody check you for all of the, like, scrubbing your nails and brushing your hair and having somebody else inspect. Yeah. Um, but about the submersion itself. But if you total up the amount of time that you spend on each portion of the ritual, the preparation for it takes so much more time than the doing of it. Right. Um, And maybe I would just have a very different mikvah experience if I did it like men do it. Um, Because for whatever reason, on the like occasional totally optional instances that men go to the mikvah, um, you know, it's pretty common before the high holidays. There does not seem to be a culture of preparation um, maybe no. because of the low halachic stakes, like it doesn't really matter whether they went or not, so they don't have to go within an inch of their lives. Um, but if my experience of going to the mikvah were just about being in the mikvah, then maybe I would feel differently about it. But it is emphatically right. like not primarily about being in the mikvah. Right. Yeah. Once when I went to the mikvah, the uh, mikvah lady was like, I had purple streaks in my hair at the time, as I do now. And the mikvah lady was like, does that come out? And I was like, no, I'm not going to take my actual hair off my actual head to go in the mikvah. Like, uh, I don't know what you think is about to happen here, lady, but I'm not going to shave my head to go into the mikvah. Obviously, there are people who do that, but... The person who shows up at the mikvah with purple hair probably isn't one of those people. She probably worried that it was like a clip-in thing. Um. I was naked! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, let me take my hair extensions out. I'm sorry. I thought that that was enough. (laughs) You just, like, checked under my fingernails. Like, whatever. Anyways. But, like, my my desire for, like, my rituals to be really rooted and authentic and not made up feeling means that all of the like mikvah reclamation that's going on like I want to use the mikvah for this moment of renewal and this moment of having been through cancer or a divorce or because whatever it is it all feels very like I'm sure it is really valuable to people but to me it feels very constructed because I'm like that's so nice but also not what mikvah is like right like you could stand in the rain and say that it's that ceremony. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean to be dismissive of people's emotional experiences, but I think they're having an emotional experience and it's hard for me to accept an emotional experience as a ritual. Hmm. That's interesting because it sounds like part of the reason that you're not that into mikvah is because you aren't having an emotional experience with it. Yes, but I, if I did it, only to have an emotional experience, it would also not, if it did not feel like it was accomplishing something religiously, then the fact that it was an emotional experience wouldn't translate into a ritual one, I think. Got it. Um, Mimi, what about you? A ritual to get rid of. Oi. Um... Gosh, I should have been preparing for this. (laughs) (laughs) It would be funny if I made Zahava get rid of one, but not you. (laughs) 
to be fair, I have a lot of rituals in my life. I have a few to spare. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah, pass some over here. Um, yeah, you'll have to come back to me tomorrow. Can you go first and I'll think about it for a second? Yeah, I mean, I also would be fine um, giving up mikvah. Um, but the other one that I was thinking about was uh, a lot of the like super happy joy stuff around Purim. The older I get, the more I find some of that stuff to be really weirdly disturbing because it's like, we didn't experience genocide. We caused one. Woo! <laughs> and I just, I can't, it makes me really uncomfortable. It feels really weird to me to be like, this is the month where we're going to be super happy because Purim. I just, I can't always get there. Um, and similar, I mean, this is kind of like a problem with me um, generally is that I like really hate um, mandatory fun. And that is why also I can't stand all things Simchat Torah. I just like, it's like a fake holiday. And I mean, it's a real holiday, but there is nothing to it. Um, and the like dancing around with the Torah is just nerve wracking to me. It's the only thing that it does for me is make me really anxious that somebody's going to drop the Torah, which does sometimes happen so I just like I can't I mean now I we literally like go out of town and don't go to shul on Simcha Torah because I can't I just really do not like it and in fact that that is a ritual in my family because growing up the one time that my dad would skip shul during the year was on Simcha Torah day he was always just like I'm done with Chagim it's so boring and embarrassing to like dance around for a long time holding a heavy thing and pretending that you're like super excited just like no um and I just remember being like scandalized by that as a child and now as an adult I'm like yes (laughs) I totally get it (laughs) so there's also um I would In my community, and I know for sure in New York, there's like a weird Simchat Torah as going out. Like, let's pregame Simchat Torah. Uh, I was like, I don't want to. Like, I've spent enough time with you people. I really don't want to drink with you right now. (laughs) As as a like point of interest, and I know nothing more about this than what I'm about to say, um, according to my mother-in-law, um, in Soviet Russia, the only Jewish holiday they made a thing out of was Simchat Torah. Interesting. Uh, I don't know why. It is really interesting. I don't. I don't think she had any context about the other holidays to be able to know why we singled. They singled that one out in Leningrad, but I just think that that's interesting. Yeah, that is fascinating. Okay. All right. So I thought of one. Did you come up yeah. with one? Okay. Good. This is so jaded. But to be shvat, I don't care. I think it's also made up um, where we just, uh, yeah, I don't care. And I'm done with it. I gotcha. Yeah. Although, to be fair, like, 
the <laughs> I feel like Mimi and I were like whole holidays that we could do without. <laughs> and Zahava <laughs> Zahava was like a very small component of an extremely complex holiday <laughs> is one I don't care as much about. Okay, so the small thing I'll also say um well, it's not even a ritual, but I think that people get way too obsessed about eating dairy on Shavuot, and I don't eat meat on the regular, but it just, like, if we could all cool it off a little bit with the blintzes and, like, so, so much dairy, I would be happier for Shavuot. I did Fair. tell my coworkers that Judaism had a cheesecake holiday, and they were super jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a cheesecake all-nighter. Okay, so what are some holidays or some rituals that we would add if we were going to add such a thing? Mimi, why don't you start? I didn't put this on the chopping block because I know that it can be meaningful for some people, but... um, I recently and my family, we've been going through a lot of health-related stuff, and um, there's a tradition of, like, saying Tehillim or Psalms while you're worried about somebody's health, Um, and I tried that and did not feel connected to that tradition or feel like the Tehillim could, like, hold... The words themselves are even just like sort of the flow of the Hebrew words and not the meaning. It just couldn't hold the emotion for me. Um, And I found myself craving a ritual or even like, you know, when you're remembering somebody's yard site and you can light a candle and it burns for a certain number of hours, like that felt, that would have felt more meaningful to me. than just like reciting words that felt really um, disconnected from my thoughts. Um, So I don't know what exactly I would want. I think I would want an action that I could put thoughts into um, rather than words that I would try to connect to my thoughts. Um, But I think that I would like a better ritual for um, thinking about somebody and hoping for healing for them. I think that that would be a really, so I think the way you're talking about it, a ritual as, as expressive um, is really different than the, the way, than what we do currently have around healing, which is forms of prayer for the person to get better. And, and I think that there might even be like a deep seated fear that, that we're, that if there were to be such a ritual, that it might look like an effort at magic words, you know, at like something transformative. If I just do this thing, then maybe the person will get better. And I, I think that a lot of Jewish ritual is symbolic or sort of reenactment, or um, it's meant to re- reinforce like a a feeling in us and make us think or act a certain way and that it's it feels sort of important to me that rituals not appear to be like 
the steps of a magic spell. But and I think something like that would have to be so carefully constructed. Right. I, I guess reciting to Hillam feels like reciting a an incantation or a chant. Of course. It, it, and and the way that it was described to be to me um that like you would say this while you were like waiting in the hospital or something i was just like i i, I it would be great to have something to be saying while i'm waiting and these words aren't working like i i understand in some ways that it is meaningful that the words are not about like, I hope this person makes it, I hope this person makes it, but rather praising God. Um, and, and that I, and I get, I hear you on the desire, um, the, the need to have a ritual that doesn't look like a quid pro quo. Um, but I, I don't know. I just, I found myself wanting something else. I'd be curious if other people have thought or have with their families done something that felt like it could hold their feelings a little bit better. Well, I know that there are a lot of good options for you on ritual. Well, <laughs> great. So I can, do I have to I go to sort the through some of them every time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, I think the best advice is just go to the mikvah and stay there. <laughs> and that way. <laughs> It's all taken Great. care of. And through your pruny fingers. Yes. You will. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Just don't make prayer hands right. because that's us. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, okay. Uh, Zahava, did you think of one that you would create? Yeah. You know, this isn't terribly original, and I know there are many things on Ritual Well in this vein, but I've been thinking recently about um, the short shrift that my community tends to give to naming female babies um, because naming boys has been attached to um, the bris mila, which is like a pretty important biblical commandment. Um, and so we make kind of a big deal out of it. Um, and then there are a lot of attempts to construct a ritual around naming daughters. Um, I've, been to some of these. I've seen a bunch. I know that there are a lot of different rituals that people have constructed and none of them has like caught on and become broadly practiced. I mean, I'm sure that in, in certain streams, like in certain streams of Judaism, certain elements have become common, but they all have this sense of constructedness and inauthenticity to me. And it's very, very hard when like, what you're looking for is rootedness, um, but the very definition of creating something new is to lack rootedness. And so I, I was, I shared this um, this question in in an Orthodox feminist Facebook group, um, probably a couple months ago. I had just come back from a friend Simchat Bat, which was a beautiful event, and they they had done a naming ritual that was very lovely. But I was feeling like the stakes of a bris are are really weighty um, because there's an actual biblical commandment for what parents are doing for and to their son. And I like put out to the group. To well, the also it's a physical procedure on his penis. Like there's, 
Yeah, but I think that is really irrelevant to what I was experiencing. Like, I get that that's true. But Maybe, but I think that's a big part of why, like, your experience aside for a second, I think a big part of the reason that um, a bris feels like a big deal to a lot of people is, like, both the, like, deep-rootedness of it and the fact that it's a physical, it's the most physical act of all Judaism. Yeah, I think that's a real thing. Um, and it's very visceral for a lot of people. But yeah. I put out this question, like, is there any mitzvah, like literally any mitzvah at all, that parents are required to do for or to their daughter that you could construct a ritual around? Um, whether it's a one-time thing or whether it's like, you know, something that parents are required to do for her whole life and you could make a ritual out of starting it. I was like, hypothetically, if parents were required to teach their daughter to read, then you could make a ritual out of showing her the first few letters of the alphabet, right? Like something. And like literally nothing. Like there was this whole thread of people reaching and what really came out is like, actually parents are pretty much, according to most opinions, not obligated to do any specific thing for their daughter. And that (sighs) is what what got me because I was like I cast my net really wide right any mitzvah any mitzvah so like according to some but not most opinions there's a passage in the Gemara about what uh, fathers must do for their sons um which includes like teaching them Torah teaching them a trade teaching them to swim and marrying them off I think those are the four things um and like According to most opinions, those don't apply to daughters. They're just, like, not a daughter thing. Um, so according to some minority opinions, you could do some of that. Um, but, like, there just wasn't anything, and it made me really ache for something that, that felt like a sanctified, commanded element of the relationship between parent and daughter that could be incorporated into a ritual. Um. There is in the Koran Sidur, which is like a Orthodox Sidur, um, a Zaved Habat ceremony, which is um, um, an actually pretty old Sephardic ceremony that was done um, for baby girls. Um, and they have the I, traditional text of that in um, in the Koran Sidur. So, I mean, it's definitely like three or four hundred years old (laughs) if you're looking for something that has a you know more recent than like the 1970s it does exist but it's not like thousands of years old like the breeze yeah I mean I I think I've I've seen that page and if anybody listening is from a community where like that's a broad practice I would love to hear about it because I've never seen it done by an actual like Sephardic community where it's supposedly um, to which it's supposedly indigenous. I should also interject. Um, I'm not going to get many of the details right, but our friend and JP Media founder, head guru, whatever, David Svi Kalman, once was telling me about searching for a ritual for um, a baby naming for his daughter that included trying to track down blood on the internet to like sprinkle on her or some sort of he connected it to like the Brit Dam, the covenant of blood that Sipora 
and Moshe had, I, I'm not going to get this right, but anyway, he, he, I'm really, really sad. We don't have David Zvi and Yael here to tell the story because it is an amazing but story. But didn't it involve trying um, to find blood and Yael was like, you're yeah. not putting blood on our newborn. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that is precisely what happened. <laughs> they did not ultimately have any blood at the baby's baby naming, which I can say because I was there. They did le- later, though, have the beard mitzvah, perhaps my favorite Jewish ritual of oh, all yeah. time. <laughs> Aside from the beard mitzvah, Tamar, what do you wish existed? Um, I was thinking a lot about how, like, at this moment in time, you hear people talk a lot about how much they want closure for things, especially, like, relationships and periods in their lives. Um, and we do have some Jewish rituals having to do somewhat with that. Like we say Havdalah at the end of Shabbat and um, we do a siyum, which is like a kind of ritual when you complete studying um, traditionally a book of the Talmud, but people also do a siyum for other texts that they finish learning. Um, And I think both of those are really meaningful and I think it would be really awesome if we had some kind of ritual that was more that was kind of like a symbolic like okay i'm turning away from this relationship this period this place whatever it was and moving towards something new partially because i think like people seem to really crave that and also because you know you're never really gonna get closure like even the most even if you do like the maximum amount of healing from something like it isn't like disappeared from your psyche. Um, so it's still there. But I think like having a tangible thing to kind of work towards and turn off of could be really useful for people. Um, and similarly, something for beginning n- beginning new things, big kind of moments in your life where you start something new that aren't a wedding or a baby, but like, a job or a new place where you move, um, a new like friendship or something that we don't have like even a bracha really for something like that. Um, I mean, we could say shahachianu, which is kind of like an all-purpose um, bracha, but I think something that was more like this is a new thing and my hopes are high and I'm wishing that it will go well in some kind of like official capacity would be, could be really meaningful. Um, and I, I have wished for, for that. Can I tell you all about a ritual that I recently observed that was not Jewish that was really meaningful? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, um, there is a thing so St. Francis is associated with animals because reasons I don't know. Um, and so there is this thing where churches will often have, um, I think like Catholic and Episcopal churches mostly, will have a day where they have the blessing of the animals. And it's usually around this time of year because um, St. Francis's day is like October 4th or 6th or something like that and so it's usually like in early October and so um 
churches will have a like blessing of the animals. I think that like in some churches they like bring in all kinds of animals like St. John the Divine Church in New York is known for having like an incredible pageant with like hundreds of different kinds of animals that they parade through. My favorite um which sounds My favorite Instagram account the yeah. no tortoise BIG um Henry the tortoise was in the like animal parade and there was a camel and ostriches yeah. and just like all sorts of crazy animals with um flower garlands on them and then Henry ate his it was great. <laughs> That's amazing. Um yeah, so I have never been to that but I kind of want to go to it. But um a lot of churches will do something where like you can bring your pet to church on a day near St. Francis's day and then the like the pastor will bless it um or priest or whatever the situation is and I heard that it was happening in our neighborhood and I was like super curious like what would it be like so I took um my two-year-old we went mostly because I was just like I want to see what this is and part of me was like oh, I don't really want to go to, like, a different religious service. And I was like, eh, we're just there to observe, not to, like, do the thing. And also I was thinking a lot about how, like, we have people who aren't Jewish, like, at our Shabbat meals all the time, like, almost every week. And I want them to feel, like, comfortable and not weird about the fact that, like, they're in our space viewing our religious thing. So I was like, I I need to be the same way. Like, it's okay for me to, like whatever. Anyways, that's the whole psychological journey I went on. But I ended up taking Adira and we went and it was so cute. There was like 30 people there and they brought their dogs or cats. And um, the pastor went around and gave a treat to all of the dogs and blessed them and said, um, may God bless you and the hands that care for you. Um, And it was like really beautiful. (laughs) And and sweet and like a nice moment and I mean hilariously one woman was like my cats don't like to go out so she just brought a printed out picture of her cats (laughs) I was like this this is amazing um uh also there were two bulldogs ravioli and cannoli love them um so (laughs) so yeah it was just it was kind of awesome and it was useful to me because it happened right around the high holidays when I was feeling kind of like full up with Jewish ritual to kind of like see something different and see that it was like interesting and how it could be meaningful and like the parts of it that felt kind of silly to me whatever the whole thing it was interesting so um if you have are able to get through the psychological hurdles that I went through to go to something like that I encourage you to do so because partially because I feel like it makes you just think, or for me at least, it made me think so much about like what makes a Jewish ritual meaningful to me and um, like how, why, and yeah. Anyways, it was it was cool. So recommend. I don't know if this exists um, in many churches, but in the more like fundamentalist churches in Arkansas that I observed, at least there was. Um, the blessing of the backpacks near the beginning of the school year, kids would bring their backpacks in and the religious leader, clergy person would give a blessing for all the students. Oh, that's yeah. cool. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Can I tell? All right. Well, tell us. Oh, Go, yeah. Can please. I tell my my Go. silly ritual that I was wishing for yeah. recently? Um, I know we've talked about Halloween before, and my mother always thought it was like something that we shouldn't celebrate as Jews. Um, and I really like the faux ritual of Jews going out for Chinese food on um, Christmas. And I found myself, I'm kind I can be kind of a Scrooge on Halloween. I love walking around my neighborhood at night, and I love that there are kids outside walking um, in my neighborhood. Um, but there's some weird things about Halloween. Anyway, so I was sort of wishing for um, an opt-out Jewish ritual on October 31st, similar to going out for Chinese food. Just a thought. I hear that. That's amazing. I once joked that the Jewish ritual for December 31st should be watching a Holocaust movie. Oh, God. <laughs> so. For December uh, 31st or with... October 31st? Sorry, December 31st, not October uh, okay. 31st. Yeah. Um, I don't think that would be appropriate for October 31st, but I'm sure we could come up with something similarly <laughs> inappropriate, yeah. maybe. Outrageous. I'll get right on it and we could submit it to Ritual Great. Well. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to recommendations. Um, Zahava, what do you have to recommend? So I had planned to recommend the Jewish Women's Archive, which has a fantastic website that we, um, I think, all probably looked at in the course of researching our first segment. Um, And there are great multimedia features and different profiles of different Jewish women. Uh, There are collections from women rabbis to power couples, women of valor, the feminist revolution, community stories, Western pioneers. So there's awesome collections. I did not know about this website, and I was talking to a friend who studies Jewish history, uh, looking for suggestions on where to research women for that segment, and she pointed me in this direction. I totally recommend it. It's jwa.org. Um, but there was there's since we did so much um, slagging on mikvah in this last segment, um, there's a poem that I just want to read. Um, have you guys uh, heard of the poet Yehoshua November? Um, mm-hmm. So he's he's an interesting poet, and um, I think he has, he has two books. Um, the first one is called God's Optimism, um, and then uh, last year he came out with a second book whose name I don't have at my fingertips right now. Um, but he himself is a Baal Teshuva, meaning he did not grow up religious and became religious. Uh, in as an adult, and he has a poem called Baal Teshuvas at the Mikvah. So I'm just going to read this. It's not a long poem. Sometimes you see them in the dressing area of the ritual bath, young bearded men unbuttoning their white shirts, slipping out of their black trousers until, standing entirely naked, they are betrayed by the tattoos of their past life. A ring of fire climbing up a leg, an eagle, an eagle whose feathery wingspan spreads the width of a chest, or worse, the scripted name of a woman other than one's wife. Then, holding only a towel, they begin once more the walk past the others in the dressing room. The rabbi they will soon sit before in Talmud class, men with the last names of the first Hasidic families, almost everyone devout since birth. And with each step, they curse the poverty that keeps the dark ink etched in their skin until, finally, they descend the stairs of the purifying water and, beneath the translucent liquid, appear once again like the next man, who, in all his days, has probably never made a sacrifice as endearing to God. So that's Baal Teshuvahs at the Mikvah by Yehoshua November. 
That's beautiful. Oh, that is beautiful. Mimi, uh, can you, what, what do you have to recommend? Yeah, so um, I have recently um, encountered some really, I, I think, charming pieces of, um, I guess, it's not quite Jews in pop culture, but it's like Jewish culture um, divorced from Jewish religion. Um, and I just really love them. So the first one is the Meyerowitz stories. Um, it's a film with Dustin Hoffman and Ben Stiller, um, and Adam Sandler, who was actually really good. Um, so anyway, the film is on Netflix. They never talk about this being a Jewish family, but it pretty clearly is. Um, the cues are mostly neurotic men with um, family issues um, and a need to prove themselves and New York. But I I don't know. I, I found it really charming. Um, and I think it, it tells a story very well. Um, the other piece of Jewish contemporary culture that I've really enjoyed is, um, have you guys listened to um, Jonathan Goldstein's podcast, Heavyweight? No, no, I haven't. Oh. I'm mixed on Jonathan Goldstein. Is it good? I find if if you're mixed on him, you might not like this because it is kind of him heavy. Um, the so it's a podcast from Gimlet Media, and the little description is: maybe you've laid awake imagining how it could have been, how it might yet be, but the moment to act was never right. Well, the moment is here. So it's people who sort of have regrets or like never asked this one question of that person or never figured out why didn't um, my mom let me do this, whatever. Um, and he, Jonathan Goldstein, sort of takes them back and they interview people from the past. Um, anyway, there are a few episodes that I want to um, that I want to recommend the first one is, one second, the first one is Buzz. It's about two Jewish brothers who've been estranged. Um, they're in their 80s, and Jonathan Goldstein tries to reunite them. And the second one that I want to recommend is called Jeremy, um, and it's a guy who Jonathan himself was sort of walking parallel lines with in life when they were teenagers, and now Jeremy has become a rabbi, um, and Jonathan reconnects to figure out, like, is this the life that I chose not to live? Um, anyway, so I really enjoyed this podcast. Many of the episodes are great, but there are some explicit shout-outs to Jewish life that um, I liked a lot. Cool. All right, I will give those a try on your recommendation. Um, I want to recommend, uh, a song, um, called What the Hell is Simcha's Torah? And it is by, um, Jumongus, um, a.k.a. Sean Altman of Rockapella. Um, it's from the al album Taller Than Jesus. And, uh, it is a hilarious song about how nobody knows what Simcha's Torah is about, which really resonates with me because <laughs> that is true um and um yeah it's great i thought that there was a music video but i have not been able to find it so i will just link to the song in the show notes but it's actually a very catchy song and uh one of those it's funny because it's true situations 
All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have a comment on the show or if you'd like to let us know what you think, suggest topics for us to discuss, then leave a message at our website, jpmedia.co. We always love hearing from you. We also have a favor to ask of you. Please find us on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. It's really helpful to new listeners to hear what you think about the show. And then please search for Jewish Public Media on Facebook and like us there. You will always know when a new episode drops, and you can use the Facebook page to suggest topic ideas and tell us what you thought of the episodes. Or, you know, tell me about the Zevet Habat if you've been to it. Um, so you are listening to this podcast for free, but it was not free to produce. If you would like to support Jewish Public Media, please head to our website, jpmedia.co, and hit the donate button. Talk to you next month. Bye, guys. Bye. Begotten, the story was forgotten a long, long time ago. The rabbis and the Talmudic scholars mused that it must.